Hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, my co host, Bruce Kelly. We are talking today about this unfolding, I don't want to call it a banking crisis yet, but it's certainly a banking crisis for some banks. So we are honored to have with us today Alexander Yoakum, Equity Research Analyst at CFRA, who happens to cover or covered uh, two of the banks that are, are no longer with us, are dearly departed. And uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what uh, Alexander sees unfolding in the near and maybe longer term. Obviously, keep in mind, we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, March 16th, and this podcast will publish on Monday, March 20th. So we're not going to try and tell you what's happening tomorrow. We're going to try and put the whole thing into some kind of context for you. So Yeah, the details are changing kind of hour by hour here. Right. right. And that's that's why it's going to be interesting to hear from Alexander because we want to, he's probably uh are are you sleeping at all any anymore Alexander or is this just uh <laughs> stay there in front of your computer and and <laughs> Well, analysts never sleep anyways. They have lidless eyes, don't they, Jeff? They're always awake. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um yeah, definitely less uh less sleep than before. Usually uh <laughs> regional banks are not the talk of the town. Um but uh yeah. I guess things have changed. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's go back to the the origins of this. And I know it's kind of been all over the place. Silicon Valley Bank referred to as SVB, but that was kind of the the first shoe to drop, right? Yes, uh, yes, it was. Just I'll just give a little context on them. Um, so they cater to venture capital and private equity clients. And during 2020 and 2021, they did quite well because it was a low rate environment. Um, venture capitalists, if they promised investors that they would make money in 10 years, they were okay with that rather than having to make it, you know, sooner. Um, so they did very well. Their clients made a lot of money. They were growing in valuations and they were taking all their new cash and giving it to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, because interest rates were low, they didn't really mind that Silicon Valley Bank wasn't really paying them anything on those deposits. But then 2022, 2023 comes along, interest rates start rising, and all of a sudden investors are like, we don't want to wait 10 years for your profits. So the value of these venture capital firms starts falling, and nobody in, venture, in the venture capital world wants to have a down round. So there was less acquisitions, there was less IPOs, less funding rounds, therefore less cash. And that cash ended up, that for Silicon Valley Bank, that's deposits. So they started running out of uh, running out of deposits, and unfortunately for them, they had invested those deposits in uh, long dated securities, which weren't paying very much. And um, when interest rates went up, they stopped being worth very much. Um, so I'll just give a quick, um, just like a, I think a way that maybe is an easy way to understand kind of how that works. Yeah. Um, maybe think about it this way. In 2020 and 2021, uh, Silicon Valley Bank was buying, let's say, these investments that are $100, and they pay $1 a year. Mm -hmm. That's the interest. That was the interest, 1%. Then in the end of 2022 and 2023, now there are similar investments that have the exact same risk that now pay 4%. The problem for Silicon Valley Bank is they bought a bunch of these at 1%. And it, remember, the exact same risk profile but one pays 4%, one pays 
the ones that pay 1% aren't worth that much anymore. And once uh, investors started realizing that and realized that Silicon Valley Bank was sort of running out of cash and they might have to sell those for a loss, people started getting really worried. And that's sort of what started the bank run. Alex, does, does, excuse me, does the bank have to mark those down or, or what, do they have to, what do they have to show on their balance sheet with that before they sell them and everything? Yes. So very good point. And this is why it came a little bit of a surprise is because a majority of their securities were in something called held to maturity. And that's where it's under the assumption that a bank will not sell it until it uh, matures. Uh, the problem is if they run out of cash, they do have to sometimes sell it. And that's where a big loss can occur. So yes, that is one reason why I think um, the investment community was surprised is because typically banks do not sell the securities. So they do not typically realize a loss, even if they're down in value. And that's what happened initially, right? They reported a $1.8 billion loss because they had to sell securities to meet uh, liquidity demands. Yes. Now, they actually sold the ones that they do report a loss on. So they, they sold their available for sale securities portfolio. And even that was pretty bad. So that was a $1.8 billion loss. The firm made $1.6 billion, I believe, in 2022. So they lost more than they made in a whole year. It, it reminds um, me of the uh, – Jeff, do you remember back in the credit crisis? I don't know how old Alexander is here, but, you know, the – Back in 2007, 2008, the big banks, you know, Merrill was a public company by itself then, Lehman, Bear Stearns. They were reporting quarterly losses of billions of dollars, you know, mm -hmm. per quarter. But they had to, they waited at least until their quarterly report, you know, to say, hey, we lost $2 billion this quarter. We lost a billion dollars this quarter. And I'd sit there and look at that stuff and I'd go, how can you continue to do this? But they were big enough to weather the storm, it seems, because they were writing down the value of, of mortgage-related uh, securities. Right. And, and I think that's a good place to make the distinction here. And, and I'm going to let uh, Alexander do it, that this was unique from the financial crisis or the credit crisis of 2008, 2009, and that this was, a, this was deposits. Deposits, exactly. Right? As opposed to investments. Right. Yeah. So... Alexander, walk us through that. Explain how this is this is such a unique situation in the banking industry. Yes. Um, typically, people are worried about credit quality issues. So people defaulting on their loans. And that, yeah, it was 2008. If people are defaulting on their auto loans, their credit card, and their mortgage all at the same time, that causes serious issues. And odds are, if people are defaulting on one, there's a good chance they're defaulting on the other ones. Um, yes, this was a, a this was honestly at the end of, end of the day, um, it was just bad risk management and um, fear causing a bank run, which didn't necessarily need to happen. So I wouldn't say that this is like a systemic issue in the banking system, just because this isn't like if one bank's credit quality goes down, like it's it's symbolic about the whole banking system. This was really just, there was a few banks that went down, Signature Bank being another prominent one, which caters to crypto. But these were highly specialized um, banks that had customer bases that were struggling because their industries were down, being crypto and venture capital. And because they had invested in these long dated securities, which fall in value when interest rates go up, they had huge losses. But it's very important to note, these weren't like risky bets. Right. They were they they were inv investing in safe securities. They just didn't manage duration correctly. 
Right, and they probably should have had a much more diversified uh, portfolio, right? Yes, typically a bank of that size would be more diversified. I wouldn't say it's surprising for a smaller bank to be a little bit more specialized, uh-huh. but yes, Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., so typically you would expect them to be a little bit more diversified. The thing is, though, their customers, they loved them. Yeah. You know, people shouldn't forget that. People, they really enjoyed working with them, and you know, venture capitalists didn't necessarily want to work with large banks who they thought didn't understand them as much or wouldn't cater their products to them as much. So it's, you know, they should have been more diversified, but um, their customers wanted to go to them. That's why they grew so quickly. All right, with, with, that, with that foundation kind of laid here, this seems to be kind of impacting at least the stock prices of a lot of banks right now. Why is that when this is such a unique situation to a couple of banks that were exposed to, in the case of Signature Crypto, and in this case uh, with uh, SVB, they were doing a lot of work with uh, venture capitalists and I think private equity investors. So why are we seeing this kind of ripple across the banking industry? Yeah, so I definitely think some people think that you know there's, there's a lot of banks that are out of bargain now, um, which could be true, but I do think people need to realize the effects that this could have. Um, mm-hmm. So because this was about deposits, the value of deposits, I think, is now going to increase. I think banks previously before this, they felt like they had enough deposits and they weren't necessarily paying that much on their deposits to customers. Yeah. So because of that, they can make a lot of profit. They can lend out for a good margin and then not give customers a lot. They, they make a lot of money. Now, you know, any bank that reports a significant decline in deposits in the next quarter, that's going to be looked upon, you know, pretty badly. So I think banks are going to be very concerned about keeping their deposits and will therefore have to pay more on deposits and that will impact profitability. Yeah, but what what about these all these online banks that uh, things like uh, Max My Interest and Stonecastle use to allocate uh, cash around to different banks so you can get that maximum FDIC insurance spread around and get yields in the four or 5% range for, for cash. How it, it would seem like these other banks would, would have been competing with those all along, but now it seems like they're going to have to, right? Or at least a little bit. There'll be some competition, but again, with the Silicon Valley bank example, um, they paid their customers less. And the customers were still happy. I mean, banks do provide a service too. Usually you're not just leaving your money there just for the interest rate. Um, so, you know, that should be a part. But I, I agree in the sense that I think banks with um, wealthy customers, they tend to be more likely to move to higher rates. And um, as interest rates continue to go up, uh, well, at least we think they will still go up at this point, uh, as long as there are no more banks that go down. Um, if interest rates, you know, continue to go up or at least stay up for a while, I do think wealthy, um, individuals will be more likely to move their money because if you have, you know, a thousand dollars, the difference between making one or 2% is 10 bucks. But if you have a hundred million, you know, that's a million or 2 million, which is quite significant. Schwab Asset Management is proud to sponsor the Investment News Podcast. In today's complex world, Schwab Asset Management provides a simple, straightforward approach to investing. As one of the largest and most experienced asset managers, they offer low-cost core ETFs for building the foundation of a diversified portfolio. Their focused lineup, which includes market cap index and strategic beta ETFs, is a reflection of a commitment to deliver exceptional experiences 
to investors and the financial professionals who serve them. Learn more at schwabassetmanagement.com backslash ETFs. That's schwabassetmanagement.com backslash ETFs. So, Alexander, what's what's going on with First Republic? That's a, um, a very prominent firm in the wealth that has been investing very heavily for the past 10 or 12 years in financial advisors, uh, particularly big teams from uh, Wall Street firms like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and UBS, and hiring them uh, all around the country, quite off, typically quite often in California. And they've had this history where they were private and then they were acquired by Merrill Lynch and then to be a private bank. And then, you know, Merrill Lynch collapsed and was bought by Bank of America and Bank of America spun First Republic off in 2010 and the like. And and then it went public. So it has this kind of long, complicated history of transactions in it, too. The stock price is down, I don't know, 60 percent or 70 percent. As we talk, we're talking now on Thursday afternoon, there's like a bank consortium group has come together and, and said it's going to, you know, inject um, tens of billions of dollars again in deposits into the bank. If you're just a, a general person, what should you know about First Republic? And then if you're a financial advisor, what more specifically should you know, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say for First Republic, um, they've definitely got caught up in this. Um, which is a bit unfortunate because before this, they were actually considered one of the least least risky banks. Um, so typically, banks. Uh, so what happened? Of... How did they get caught up? In all that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they have the bad luck to have locations in similar places as Silicon Valley Bank, um, and Northern you... California. I mean, y- yes, yeah. I believe their headquarters are about fifty miles apart from each other. Right. Um. So the problem is, as Silicon Valley Bank is going down, um, people who are at First Republic are thinking, uh-oh, are my deposits safe? Uh, because last week, you have to remember that people did not know if their uninsured deposits would be safe yet. So people were worried that they would lose any money in excess of $250,000. Right. Um, so when there was a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank, people started to look around, you know, who else, you know, could could go down and people saw first republic and i think silicon valley bank or silicon valley is just known for everybody talking to each other and spreading you know very quickly herd mentality i've heard used um so if your friends are trying to take money out of their bank and they can't maybe you just take yours out just to be safe so it's that irrational um i mean it's not just irrational they do their i mean their securities portfolio is is also underwater but not nearly as much as silicon valley bank i mean honestly a majority of the banking industry actually has their securities portfolio underwater Mm -hmm. um but they also have wealthy uh clients more wealthy than the typical bank and like i was talking about earlier um wealthy clients are more likely to move i think if there's danger or if there's higher rates so they can be a little bit um you know, less secure when things are, you know, moving quickly. And if you're a financial advisor with First Republic, what what kind of questions should you be asking of management? What kind of things should you be thinking about in terms of this bailout? And, you know, how do you keep your door open and your lines of communication going with your clients? So, I mean, I guess the, the biggest positive is it feels like the banking industry wants to do whatever they can to keep First Republic up. 
Um, I did not really get that impression from Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And I think that's because they were not, they were specialized in industries that other banks wouldn't necessarily deal with. I think First Republic is, is very well respected. Um, so the news that came out today on Thursday, um, basically the eight largest banks plus a few others, but the eight largest banks in the U.S. all are contributing deposits to help First Republic continue. Um, so I think it's a good view that the industry is doing whatever it's can, whatever it can to keep them up. And um, they've also gotten support on Sunday from J.P. Morgan and the Fed in terms of, um, you know, potential uh, loan. So um, I think it's 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 a good look that the industry really wants them to uh, to do well. Yeah, it reminded me kind of, you know, back in the 90s. What was the name of the big hedge fund that blew up? Long term capital management. Yeah. Right. And there was going to be that consortium, Jeff, right, of, you know, all the firms that don't exist anymore. Smith, Barney, Bear Stearns. Did Bear Stearns refuse to or, or I, I forget which one didn't want to put their marbles in the ring. Maybe Goldman. I forget which one it was. But, you know, there's a big uh, a group that came together and th- were throwing in, I don't know, 500 million into a kitty or a billion into a kitty, not 10 billion or 20 billion like they're doing now in order to bail out long-term capital management so it wouldn't um, have this spread or contagion against these uh, hedge funds that were really taking off at the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, nobody wants the, um, the banking industry to go down. You know, even the big players, um, even though some people have moved their deposits from regional banks to large players, they don't want First Republic to go down. They're, they're actually even larger than Silicon Valley Bank. So, like, it's a very large bank. And if it goes down, you can only imagine the headaches in terms of more regulation that will occur on the banking industry. Um, and it, it would just not be good um, really for anyone. Oh, Elizabeth Warren's cudgel would double in size, right? <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I mean, she's already sharpening the knife here. She's sharpening the knives, man. She is, she, and they, and you know, Wall Street can't stand her, so... Um, and the, and the Democrats still control the Senate. So, yeah. Hey, um, Alexander, what about let's, I know you cover regional banks, but what's your, uh, what's your take on credit Suisse? I I know it's a different situation, but it's, it's also, it's, there's a lot of similarities there, right? And that's another target that's moving right now. Yeah, there's there's some similarities, but I would say Credit Suisse, like they're actually having problems with the way they run the bank, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is distinctly different. Theirs is, I would say, maybe more concerning in the 08 fashion, where mm-hmm. it's 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 a bank that's you know run poorly and could so could cause issues. Whereas you know a reminder with Silicon Valley Bank, you know their credit was fine, the bank was being run fine, they just didn't have good risk management on in terms of their securities portfolio. Um, right. So actually, I view those somewhat different. It's just a coincidence that this happened at the same time. I mean, it's a weird coincidence. Probably not a coincidence. I mean, some of their issues um, in the last few days have come from one of their largest backers not wanting to put more money in. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if that person didn't see, um, you know, banks struggling in the U.S., maybe they would have been a little bit more confident to put more oh, money into the bank. Yeah. So. Um, they could actually well, be somewhat related. Well, at at this hour, uh, early evening on uh, Thursday, it looks like Credit Suisse, I call it Suisse, 
is uh, is in is in on in line for some kind of a a rescue package. Um, what do you think about the the packages that have been put forth to to kind of shore up these regional banks? Is it? I mean, people don't like to use the word bailout, I guess, unless you're a recipient of that. But is that what this is? I mean, we're talking. From what I can understand, FDIC insurance, which is normally supposed to cap at $250,000, is being pushed well beyond that, correct? Yeah, so technically it's only at the two banks that have failed, um, but well beyond that, I mean literally 100%. So even if you have a billion dollars, it is 100% um, insured. Yeah, which um, does bring up the moral hazard um, argument. Um but I think people already forget what the uh, what the feeling was on Saturday and Sunday of fear of bank after bank going down. Um, so if they were going to do it, I think they did it in a decent way. And they made it clear that the banking system would have to pay for any costs that are associated with this, not the taxpayer. Now, obviously, most Americans have bank accounts and then the bank will charge you more. So maybe it's somewhat similar but I do think it's a good look that at least they're taxing the banks directly. On yeah, this one. yeah, it is. I mean, it's. It, I, I hear what you're saying about um, laying it on the banks and then they pass it along. It's sort of like taxing a business, who ultimately pays the business that it, or the taxes that a business pays. It's the consumers of that business. But um, what do you, what do you think about any kind of ripples from here? It it kind of feels like things are settling down. But, I mean, this is a lot of times how these things unfold. I mean, again, we don't know how old you are, Alexander, but Bruce and I have been through a few cycles. And uh, and they, they a lot of times they start with something like this, and then, you know, suddenly the floodgates are open. Are we dealing with something like that potentially, or am I just scaring the crap out of people? So there's a chance. Um, I think we knew something was going to happen when the Fed started raising interest rates because rates had been low for so long, we knew part of the economy was not going to be ready for higher rates. We just didn't didn't know what it was going to be yet. And apparently it was this. Um, but again, I think it's really important to point out that this is not credit quality based. So the banks actually, in terms of their functionality, they're, they're quite strong. They're, they're, you know, in general, most banks have been doing well in terms of um, profitability and revenue. They're not seeing concerns in terms of people defaulting and stuff like that. So it could be the beginning of something, but um, that is not my base case. Um, because again, it is important to point out that the two banks that went down were highly specialized um, and it wasn't credit quality based. Um, it was really fear. And you would hope, given the fact that uninsured investors, um, you know, now, you know, it, we, we anticipate that new uninsured investors would be made whole as well. Um, there should be less panic. Um, but it will likely result in lower profitability for banking as a whole, um, like I said. And um, yeah, so. Anything else, Bruce? I got a, I got a final question for, for uh, Alexander about his, uh, about his NCAA bracket before we wrap. <laughs> but. Okay, so Alexander, just regarding Dodd-Frank and the, uh, you know, the regulation that came uh, after the credit crisis of 2008 and, um, uh, you know, which the banks that survived didn't like, but, you know, it put them under stricter 
It may, you know, put somebody from the Fed literally inside their offices. It had stricter capital requirements. It had stricter credit quality uh, reporting and requirements. And that got loosened under the Republican administration of President Trump in 2018, I believe. Um, it did, would this have happened at SVB Bank? Is there some reporting issue that they had with these um, uh, these investments, these these credit quality investments that they had? Uh, that you know, if Dodd Frank hadn't been changed and loosened up a little bit, would this have been forestalled or you know avoided in any way, or was it inevitable, regardless? Yeah, so that that's definitely a great question. Um, so yeah, the loosening was from 50 billion of assets to 250 billion of assets, and Silicon Valley Bank was, um, you know, about 200 billion assets. Right, so right. it does feel, you know, a little bit of a coincidence there. Um, and it is a little bit of a bad look that both Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank were both um, trying to get that raised, right? So they they were both, you know, they were lobbying they talked, for that pretty hard. Yes, right. Yes. So yeah. that is also um, not a good probably, look, not a good look. But I think <laughs> um, it's important to point out, though, that these securities portfolios, both available for sale and held to maturity, are on their 10K. So every bank, you can look on their 10K and see what it is. So everybody knew this. It, this wasn't hidden information that, you know, just wasn't written down anywhere. We knew what it was and it's updated. Um, so. It was there. We okay. just didn't know it was a concern. And I, I mean, there is more, you know, they would have looked at it more if they were over 250 or if it hadn't been increased from 50 to 250. But like I said, typically people are worried about credit quality. So I'm not so sure that this would have come up as, a, as an issue. So I think it might have happened anyway. Yeah, just my two cents, Jeff and Alexander, is anytime when you have interest rates move right in such a severe fashion something is somebody's going to get caught with their pants down uh in some way some financial institution is not going to be prepared uh for the backlash of that that's just been my experience in the 20 plus years here at investment news my two cents jeff yeah well anybody paying attention hopefully understood that these rates were going to do what they're doing because that's the only tool they have to try and navigate. a lot of people didn't though man right obviously <laughs> so. it, it is wild that the uh the fed told us all exactly what yeah. they were going to do and nobody believed them <laughs> <laughs> right yeah all right well hey when we were leading up to the super bowl oh yeah uh the playoffs we uh we kind of asked people their their picks going into this and i didn't warn you for this alexander so you can take a pass if you want but today's the first day of the NCAA playoff tournament. You have, did you fill out a bracket, or you can't talk about that because it's a it's a CFRA violation or something? Or are, <laughs> are you rooting for anybody? I've been obsessed in previous years with with the bracket. I usually fill out five or six, and unfortunately <laughs> this year because of banking, I, I haven't been able to. Oh man! Uh, um, so I got NC State. Uh, that's that's my uh, that's my school. That's where I went to school. Um, they're an 11 seed though. Oh, great so. school. Hey, thank yeah. you. It's um, we we won a while back. It's it's been quite a few years. It, right. it would be uh, it would be very exciting. But yeah, unfortunately, I haven't uh, I haven't had the time. Did you say NC State, North Carolina State? Absolutely. Oh, is that where you're from? Yes. Oh, all right. Well, I live in North Carolina. I'm not from here though, but. Uh...
I'm going to tell you right now. I got Duke going all the way. Oh, no. Right? Oh, no. Yeah, I can't. Well, <laughs> I, I know. If you're NC State, you're not going to like Way Duke. to insult the guest, Jeff. Well, hey, I, I, I'm trying to win. I'm, it's a $10 pool, Bruce. I'm not a millionaire like you. All right? this, is, this is my retirement right here. <laughs> I will say, though, without Krzyzewski, it, it's, it's not as bad. It's yeah. not as bad. <laughs> all right well that's uh the good stuff thank you very much alexander for breaking all breaking it all down for us and making yeah thank it you alexander and, and really good stuff i appreciate your help we appreciate your help thank you very much yeah thank you it was it was, it was fun thanks jeff launching every monday it's another episode of the investment news podcast we want to thank our special guest alexander yokum from CFR Research. Uh, we also want to remind our listeners that this week we have five special episodes with our very own tech guru, my colleague Ryan Neal, uh, live from the T3 conference starting on March 22nd. He's interviewing all kinds of people from the fintech world who want to listen to that. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. Of course, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. Find it at Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles are at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. And stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.